All right, the only announcement that we have while everybody's finding their seat is uh, men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning, and that is May 15th at 7.30 in the morning, and we're going to have pancakes. We're going to have pancakes, and we're going to have eggs and bacon and, you know, all kinds of other stuff, so it's a... It'll be a good breakfast, good morning, and then for spiritual food, we started this in January, then I was gone in February, then we had the Chafer Conference, and then I don't know what it was in April, but um, so we're going to get started with it again, but this is a series that Francis Schaefer did back in the late 70s called How Should We Then Live, and we're showing the 30-minute videos, which are really good for understanding the development, historical development of how we got where we are today in terms of Western civilization. And so we watch about a 30-minute video and have some discussion and then prayer. So that's what's going on on Saturday morning. So come out. Uh, if you got kids, a son, bring your son. Good to get them out with the men. And we will then uh, see you on Saturday morning. Okay, I think that is just about it. I don't think we have other, other announcements. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can be spiritually prepared to study the Word and get some application out of what we have studied in the last few weeks, a few lessons in Judges, and begin to uh, get a framework for understanding what's going on in this period. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can come together this evening just to fellowship around your word, recognizing that as our Lord prayed the night before he went to the cross, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is by means of your word that you sanctify us, that you build us up, develop in us that uh, character of Christ. You conform us to his image. We partake of your nature all of these different terms that are used in the Scripture that speak of our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Father, as we study today, there are a lot of lessons, a lot of similarities, parallels with what was going on in Israel during the time of the judges and what is going on in our nation today. And Father, we pray that we might learn these lessons and that those who are listening as well online and others will uh, be able to communicate this to uh, many across the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's always interesting when I find it. We just get little glimpses. It's not like the old days when you knew how many cassette tapes you were mailing out or how many reel-to-reel tapes you were mailing out every month. You just put this stuff up on the internet and hope that some of your uh, analytics give you something close to an idea of what is actually going on. 
And so we get letters and emails and notes from people all the time about how uh, how this ministry is impacting them, and they come from the Philippines, and they come from Europe, they come from Sweden and England, and you know all the different states uh, in the union, and it's just uh, just wonderful to see that. But we live in a time now because of the globalism, the global uh, network, that the whole world has truly turned to postmodernism outside of those that are where they have an enforced tyranny, uh, like in communist China and, uh, uh, and in the former Soviet Union in many places. But um, where there's freedom, people are turned to abusing it into pure libert- libertinism, where they are just doing whatever they want to. And that's what postmodern moral relativism is, where the creature decides at any given moment what is right and what is wrong. And what is right and what is wrong right now may may reverse itself in an hour and may reverse itself again in three hours because everything depends on the emotional drive of the individual and how he feels about it at any given moment. And that's the picture that we see in, uh, in Judges. But what God has done in the way he handled Israel and the way he handles us is that he sets this scenario up to test believers, to give us an opportunity to learn how to apply the word and grow spiritually in the midst of these tests. And I learned this a long time ago when I was teaching this, that a lot of people have a very, very wrong understanding of what a test is. People think of tests in terms of just the big tests, uh, something that is serious, something that is significant, something that affects the balance in your checkbook, affects your health, affects your family, uh, really upsets your normal routine. But those are maybe a small percentage of the test. Tests, The tests that we have day in and day out, and you need to pay attention, is any time we have a scenario where there is a, a basically a binary solution. That means you can go left or right. Maybe that's a bad analogy. You can, do, you can apply the word and let God solve the problem or tell you what to do. Or you can go in another direction where you're basically handling it yourself according to human viewpoint, according to the way the world thinks, and, and all of the myriad different facets of paganism. And we have thousands of tests every day. Every time we have to make a decision and either apply what we know and, ha- and live the way we should live, think the way we should think as a believer, or not. That's why it's, a, it's binary. The not may include a thousand different alternatives, but they're all outside the plan of God, outside of God's uh, revealed will in his word. And so we go through thousands of these, and they have, uh, and they seem very, very minor, and many of them are, are things that we may not even consciously think through because we, as unbelievers, we develop habits of thinking that are ingrained in us, and those habits of thinking and responding and reacting were shaped by our sin nature. 
And so our, our default reaction response habit pattern is always shaped by the sin nature. And that's why we have to not conform ourselves to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to uh, think differently. We need to be trained to think differently, disciplined. That's why you have these words like gumnazo in the, in the New Testament, which was the uh, Greek term for, for athletic discipline. We get our word gymnasium from that word. And so that, that's the process. And we see this illustrated in Judges, that God, because of their failure, is going to leave these Canaanite tribes to survive in the land in order to test them. And so this is all part of what we see all through the book, and we've gone through the framework of the book, the orientation of the book, that the first two chapters down to 3-6 are all about how Israel goes from spiritual victory and spiritual maturity. That doesn't mean they're perfect. When somebody is spiritual, spiritually mature, that doesn't mean they always make the right decision. But they make the right decision more than they make the wrong decision. And the wrong decisions they make aren't the extremely foolish ones, except maybe every now and then. So they go from spiritual maturity to uh, where they're just in spiritual rebellion and their lives don't appear to be any different from the lives of the Canaanites. In fact, they appear to be much, much worse. And so that's, that's where we are. So we got down towards the end of chapter 2 last time. And it's going through t- describing, uh, describing the cycle. That reminded me of something. Somebody said that little sheep video I showed last time, which will make an encore, will uh, we'll show that, that it has sound. I didn't even know that. So we'll try to play that again in a minute. So then the anger of the Lord literally means the nose of Yahweh burned. That's the very visual way in which uh, the Hebrew explains anger. Uh, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, "'Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice. Okay, what are the causal factors for what's going to happen? In the culture, they're going to face uh, military oppression, military attacks, economic disaster, agricultural uh, collapse at different stages in repetitive cycles. And those are not caused by technological failures. They're not caused by caused by something like global warming or maybe it's opposite or any of these other factors. They are caused by the spiritual condition of the people. And the reason I bring that out and try to emphasize it over and over again is there are a lot of models out there for why we go through these economic ups and downs and why we go through various uh, meteorological cycles and all kinds of other things. But the reality in God's word is there's one factor that you can't quantify, you can't measure, you can't uh, build an equation on to put it into the laboratory and, and, and model, and that is the spiritual condition of the people. And God promises when the spiritual condition of the people is obedient, then you're going to have a minimal amount of these negatives. And when the people are obedient, then there's going to be a maximum amount. I mean, when they're disobedient, there'll be a maximum amount of these these negatives. So he goes on to say in verse 21, 
that because they transgressed, they're going to lose militarily. They're not going to be able to defeat the Canaanites. I will not, uh, no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. God is saying he drove them out. Now, some of you are, I know, are history buffs. Some of you are like to read about World War II. There's a series out by Rick Atkinson, a trilogy called, I think it's called the, the Liberty, is that what it is? Liberty Trilogy, something like that. And it's on, it's on World War II, and it's just outstanding, and he really drills down into a lot of logistics and logistical failures that the Allies had, especially in the first couple of years of the war. And it's amazing. Americans don't seem like they could even tie their shoelaces the first two years of the war. They couldn't get gas to the right depots, and if it got to the right depot, then the, the tanks weren't at that depot. They were at the wrong depot. I mean, it was just an absolute mess. And the Germans, when it came to logistics like that, were just precise. They did everything right. Guess what? God intervened, and the Germans lost, and we won. And it went that way all the way through the war. And that's what I'm saying is somehow there is this non-quantifiable variable in the equation that is the God variable that God determines what the outcome is. And, And that is based on his plan and it's based on the spiritual orientation of the people. So that's what we learn from Judges. So they go through these cycles where they apostatize, they fall away from the truth, they're disobedient, they abandon God and they enslaved themselves to Baal and the Asherah. And that leads to oppression or divine discipline where God judges them. And then they're going to moan and whine, and they're going to complain, and they're going to go through emotional remorse and turn to God because they're tired of getting spanked. And then God is going to deliver them. And then it doesn't last long, 20 years, maybe 40 years, and then they do it all over again, and it just uh, goes on and on, and that's the pattern of paganism. And we see it repeated through judges, but each time it goes downhill, and each judge starts with a worse condition than the judge before, and he ends up, after the deliverance, then the people apostatize, and they're worse than they were earlier, and it just... Uh, continues to go uh, downhill. So in verses 22 and 23, God says, so that through them, that is through those pagan nations, I may test Israel. He's going to evaluate them. He's going to put them in situations so that they have to decide whether or not they're going to do it God's way or their way. I will test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord. How do they know the ways of the Lord? They go to the Mosaic Law. God tells them exactly what they are supposed to do in all these situations in a broad general sense, but he establishes the boundaries. Uh, So he and, And the issue is, are they going to walk in them as their fathers kept them? And by that, he is referring to uh, the generation of Joshua, the uh, the conquest generation that uh, defeated the Canaanites in the initial part of of the conquest. Verse 23, therefore, here's the conclusion. 
the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately. Notice the Lord left them. It wasn't the result of any human issue. It's not the result of technology or military strategy, whether or not they read Sun Tzu or not. None of that matters. It all ultimately has to do with the Lord's uh, purpose. And he uh, did not deliver them all into the hand of Joshua. So we see this pattern of divine judgment where we see God's judicial action, uh, God's nose burned. They have violated his righteousness, and so his justice has to take action. They violated his righteousness. That means they violated his lo- the law, and so he's got to be faithful to what he said in the covenant and invoke the, consequ- the negative consequences, the punishments that are in the law. And so that brings about divine discipline, and then the people will change their mind, and then God delivers them, and so that's their cycle. And then we have our fun little video, so I'm going to see if I can uh, uh, get this to play right. Whoop. There it goes. I don't have any volume. I'm not hearing anything. There we go. How many of y'all did that today once or twice? Don't raise your hands. Uh, That's just such a great picture of, of Christians, of all of us. We just leap with joy right back into the sinful mud puddle. So God is going to test them. The verb for test is nasa. Now, we see a form of that. It was really interesting. I had not made this connection till till today. But in Exodus, when the Israelites are complaining and groaning about uh, water and everything, and they they go through this little little episode where God brings them water, that's at masa, masa with an M, is a form of nasa, which is with an N, as in Nancy. And so that's why they name it that, because this was where God tested them. Uh, That through them I may test Israel, that's nasa, which means to test or to try or to prove something. It's the idea of, let's say you have been gold mining, and you find some, some, uh, some gold, and you need to have it evaluated to see how much of this rock is really gold and how much of it is not, and have it assayed is, is the term. And so that you're going to test it. You're going to evaluate it. That's part of the process. And so you have to uh, prove whether it's gold or fool's gold, something like that. And so this is an evaluation situation. In the New Testament... Or rather, in the let me stick with the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, that's what LXX means. That's the Roman numeral for seventy. And the idea was that the Pentateuch was translated by seventy rabbis in seventy days, from Hebrew to Greek. And so that was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the Jews had from about 250 BC up through two or three. And there's a couple of other Greek translations that were made, but that was basically the Bible of the of the disciples and what Jesus quoted from many times, and what writers of the New Testament often quoted from. Sometimes it's a little different, but 
we always talk about, well, the Septuagint, as if there were one. Who knew? There aren't. There wasn't one, like, standard uh, uh, Septuagint. So there were some variants between them, but that gets off into another issue. So the word that is used in the Septuagint to translate nasa is the verb parazo. Parazo has the exact same meaning, and it is consistently used to translate nasa. And it is uh, parazo that is used throughout the New Testament, and we'll see New Testament passages that that use it. So he is uh, uh, God is going to test them, and it shows up only three times. It shows up in two twenty two that we just looked at in three one, and also uh, in three four. Uh, now, these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. And then in 3, 4, it says, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So that's the issue in a test is, are you going to do what God said to handle that situation or not? Are you going to respond in patience and kindness and grace orientation? Are you going to respond in anger and bitterness and resentment? Are you going to uh, uh, respond in a way that reflects the character of God? Or are you going to respond in a way that reflects your own little self-centered sin nature? That's, that's the option. The word pirazo, the Greek word, is the word that is used in the first test that's given in the New Testament, and that is when the Holy Spirit leads, leads Jesus into the desert to be tested by the devil. He is going to be uh, tempted, but tempted uh, always carries with it that sort of uh, subjective sense of an attraction to the object that's used as bait. So I prefer to use the word testing because that has an objective sense because whether or not you're attracted to the bait, it, it's still a test. Jesus is not drawn to the bait because he's sinless. You and I are always headed for the bait right away before we can even think about it because our sin nature has an affinity for it. And we have to stop and think and say, okay, wait a minute. What does God say that I must do? So that's, that's the word that's used there. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation, that is no test, has been overtaken you. No situation has come into your life except what is common to man. Everything we face in our generation was the same kinds of things that were faced in Moses' generation and in Noah's generation and all the way back, they're the same categories. The difference, I think, is that in our modern world, uh, we have uh, the options. To, we get tested about a thousand times every hour, where they got tested maybe two times every hour. We have so many more opportunities that come our way. So it's the intensity and of the of modern civilization. I read an article some years ago that said that uh, the uh, medieval uh, French peasant uh, uh, made about a thousand decision, decisions a year, whereas an elementary school teacher makes about a thousand decisions every two hours. 
you know, when all you've got is a farm and the cat and a, you know maybe a mule to pull the plow, and you, your your wife and your kids are just don't, not all the opportunities that you have today, not all the temptations. So uh, th- we have a more intense environment, but other than that, it's the same principle, the same thing. But God, there's the contrast. God is faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He is. He supplies the strength to handle the circumstance through his word and the Holy Spirit, which we get at the instant of salvation, the Holy Spirit. And then we have the word that, uh, that informs us of how to handle the situation, who will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. And that relates to the fact that we have the Holy Spirit and the word of God. But will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. James says, count it as joyful when you encounter these various tests because you know that the evaluation of what you believe, that's what it is. The test evaluates what you believe. It's testing your faith. And uh, because you know that the evaluation of what you believe produces endurance, but let endurance have its maturing work, that you may become mature and complete, lacking nothing. And then James 1.14 says, But each one is tested when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. We see the bait and we're running for it. So what does the Bible teach us about temptation and testing? That's what I want to use this to do and go through some, some examples. So Judges 2.3 2, God said that he was going to leave them there and that their gods would be thorns in their side and would be a snare to them. And the word for snare means a trap. And so we have a well-baited mouse trap in the picture. And that's what we're looking for. Now, Judges 2.22, God says, so that through them I may test Israel. And so this is an interesting cartoon I saw because on the left you have the, the little boy who's handling a donut and he's going to throw a crumb to the little gremlin. And as soon as the gremlin takes a bite, he shows how big and uh, powerful he really is. And Christians play around with sin a lot and we forget how powerfully destructive it really is. So our definition is that uh, a test is any situation in life When the believer has the option of choosing between applying doctrine or using his own resources to solve the problem, reacting in anger or reacting in patience and grace orientation and kindness. Second point is that tests are not merely difficult situations, serious decisions, or handling unforeseen obstacles. If you think this, you've already lost the battle because a lot of Christians think the tests are just the big monster tests. So what's the way in which tests occur? Well, first of all, we have adversity. And when we hit this adversity, there is a test, and it can be a trap. And uh, it may cause us inconvenience. There may be people testing or system testing or health testing. System testing is what you have to deal with when you call customer service. 
System testing is what happens when you have to call the IRS to get information about how to do your taxes. System testing is having to deal with any bureaucracy, whether it's within the company that you work for or whether it has to do with the government or whatever it may be. That's the system testing. Uh, Health testing, which is anything that starts to uh, fall apart in our body, eyesight goes, hearing goes, uh, knees go, hips go, backs go, necks go, hair goes. Health testing. Then we have finances. And finances can be hit suddenly. All of a sudden you can go through a period where you're just hammered with one thing that falls apart after another none of which was anticipated, expected. And when this happens when you're young, you just don't have the depth of a savings account to handle all of it, and it can get you in some real trouble. Also, grief. Now, I've seen some situations in in my life personally when I was younger and through the years as a pastor that when a young parent dies, and I'm talking some usually a man in their 40s, sometimes a little older, depends, that if there are teenage children, you better watch it. Grief is a really strange thing, and I have seen so many adolescents just absolutely do a 180 when they have a parent die. They don't know how to handle grief, and you can talk till you're blue in the face, but they're still going to make a lot of bad decisions when you're not around. And decisions that you never thought they would ever make in their life. It's just a horrible thing to watch. But adults do the same thing as well. You get in a situation of grief and you can your brain just seems to be cloudy. You may not even recognize it and you can make a lot of bad decisions. Also, there's all kinds of weather things that happen. Everything from tornadoes to hurricanes to freezes, all of which we seem to be getting this year. And health, of course, you can have a pandemic that changes everything. So each time we hit one of these situations, it's an opportunity to exercise our volition. And we either are going to be positive and we're going to choose to do what God says to do, or we're going to be negative. And that means we're either going to be following divine viewpoint or human uh, viewpoint. And when we follow human viewpoint, it blocks out the faith rest drill. And then we have to confess sin and we have to recover. Divine viewpoint is built on trust, built on the faith rest drill, claiming promises, doing what God says to do. In human viewpoint, we're always trying to take care of ourselves on our own, and we're consumed with protecting whatever it is that is in danger. So the sin nature is hyperactive and creates emotional sins, anger, anxiety, worry, fear, Those are the emotional sins, hatred, malignancy, blaming other people, and you become implacable uh, in your uh, your, uh, anger and resentment. I just ran across an interesting historical illustration of implacability. Now, a couple of you have listened in on the church history classes, and we just went through this week the English Reformation. And you have this real soap opera going on with Henry VIII and his wives and his getting his son and an heir and all of these different things. His first wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon, he divorces her. She's sent, sent off in isolation. She has a daughter, Mary. 
Now, Mary is going to get Catherine's revenge. She is bitter and angry against Henry for divorcing his mother. It is palpable. And she grows up, and the older she gets, the more bitter and angry and hateful she is towards towards Henry. And then uh, when Henry dies, his son is going to be the king for about six or seven years, and he's weak and sickly. He's nine years old when Henry becomes king, and then he only lives to be about 15 or 16, and he dies, and then Mary gets her chance. And she has been harboring this bitterness and anger towards Henry and the break off with the Roman Catholic Church because she's reared in strict, rigid uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, he has embarrassed the church, embarrassed the Pope, all of these horrible things. And uh, so when she becomes the queen, she immediately fires and arrests all of the church officials because the church now is Anglican. They've all left the Roman Catholic Church. And so she arrests uh, anybody of any significance. And over the next couple of years, she will have over 300 burned at the stake at Smithfield. But apparently it didn't end there. We can't say for sure because there's no hard evidence But a few years ago, when they were uh, doing some uh, repair work and renovations at the location where Henry VIII was buried, the workman did something and his tomb collapsed. And you know what they found in his tomb? Nothing. Henry wasn't there. And there's no record of anybody moving Henry or anything else. And so the theory that has the greatest amount of attraction to, pe- to historians is that in light of Mary's bitterness and hate, hateful hatred towards Henry and towards all the Protestants, that she probably, because this was the standard idea, was if you, the reason they burned you at the stake and didn't stone you like they did in the Bible was that God couldn't put you back together again so you wouldn't end up in heaven. Theology is a little shallow. But um, so she, the, the thinking is that she had Henry's body dug up and burned and his ashes scattered. That's what they did, the Roman Catholics did to Wycliffe uh, about 100 years after he died. They declared him a heretic, dug up his body and his bones and burned everything, scattered his ashes so he couldn't be resurrected. But now that's implacability. That is a deep-seated, long-nursed hatred for somebody. So that's an emotional sin, and it destroys the soul. Overt sins, they're attempts to control people. We want to intimidate people, threaten people. We give them dirty looks or we let them know in various overt ways that there's going to be really negative consequences if they don't do things just the way we want them done. It's an attempt to dominate and get our way all the time. And then there's sins of the tongue, gossip, maligning, slander, Uh, And it's all an attempt to manipulate and micromanage and to destroy other people's reputations. So we have two options. And if we take the top option and go divine viewpoint, then God the Holy Spirit is going to produce in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, all the fruit of the Spirit. All that's going to be, be ours. So there's a huge contrast between the production of the sin nature and the production 
of God the Holy Spirit. And the way in which we grow and apply things is through those ten spiritual skills. We confess sin, we walk by the Spirit, we uh, exercise the faith rest drill, we orient to grace, we orient to doctrine, we develop and enhance our personal love for God the Father, we have uh, unconditional love for one another, and we are occupied with Christ, and then we have uh, the perfect peace and stability of God's shared happiness. All of that is those skills we practice or should practice every single day so we stay up here and not down here being controlled by the sin nature. So that's how the test works. We have adversity. We're tested to handle it in any of these kinds of situations, and we either go towards divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. Third thing is what I just illustrated. Tests are the opportunities to demonstrate the biblical truth that you have learned and assimilated into your soul. It's the opportunity, it's a pop quiz. You've been in Bible class, you've been reading your Bible, you've been studying, you've been learning all these things, and all of a sudden you're hit with a situation and it's a pop quiz and you have to decide whether you're going to pass or fail, whether you're going to apply what God's Word says or not. This is what James is talking about. When you encounter various trials because you know something, you know that your faith, that is what you believe, is being evaluated. You know that the evaluation of what you believe produces endurance. But let endurance have its maturing work. See, as you go through these tests over and over again, growth develops, strength develops, you begin to mature so that uh, eventually you reach that stage of spiritual maturity Uh, lacking nothing because God has supplied our every need. And the very next verse says, but if you lack something, if you lack wisdom, if you lack the ability to discern how to apply the word to the situation, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all men and upbraideth not. God is going to give you, help you understand how to wisely apply the word. So these tests arrive from a number of sources. They can come from your worst enemy, which is the sin nature that is inside of you. Your own sin nature is going to test you. It's going to tempt you to respond in certain situations. So we sort of have to learn how to biblically say no to our sin nature. Fifth, some tests are the result of living in a fallen world. They come from outside. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there is, there is justice that is always going to be tainted and corrupted. There are things that happen that to everybody, to one degree or another, that aren't fair, aren't just, aren't right. But we have to learn to handle them by putting the situation in the hand of God and moving forward with our life, trusting in Him. So when we live in a world that is under the control of the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, we have only one solution, and that is we need to metaphorically be on our knees 24-7, depending upon God to get us through the situation. Sixth, some further tests will arise just from the consequences of our own bad decisions based on our sin nature. We make bad decisions and makes matters worse, and then that's another 
form of adversity, and we have to decide, are we going to handle that with the Word of God or continue to handle it on our own? Seventh, the solution to every test, every situation, is always found in the character of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. That's why when you read through the Psalms and David is facing these tests and he's crying out to God, there's always some measure of a rehearsal of God's attributes. He reminds God of who he is, and in doing that, he reminds himself who God is, and God is just more powerful than any problem that he's ever going to face. And even though he may go through difficulty and unpleasantness, God is going to give him the ability to endure it and come out the other side having learned and grown spiritually. Eighth, there's no problem, there's no circumstance, there's no situation. Now, some people, if you live since Sigmund Freud, you think, oh, we have these psychological and emotional problems. Well, he's brainwashed generations of people into thinking the problem isn't sin. If you're going to be a biblical Christian, you have to understand whatever the problem is, its root is in sin. And that sin may have physiological consequences, but the root issue is always sin. And so we have to understand that it is the power of God that is the solution to the problem ultimately, and we have to spend time with that. Now, it's going to vary on different situations, but that's, that's the bottom line. We have to believe in the sufficiency of God's grace and the sufficiency of God's omnipotence. Ninth, the central issue, therefore, in the Christian life begins with being or walking in fellowship with God, that active partnership with God as we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, and each step is on the basis of the faith rest drill. We're trusting in God. We're walking step by step by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those are the nine basic principles that just summarize the, the whole teaching of the Scripture on testing. Now, in this, uh, I've got a couple more little points are, yeah, on point 10. We're going to get some examples from Israel and from people in the Old Testament. Israel failed, and we failed for basically the same reasons. We fail to make learning and applying God's Word the number one priority in our life. And it is one thing to memorize God's Word, and that's, a, that's basic. We, you, there are different steps in learning. And the goal is to get to the point where the, the thinking that is embedded in the promise it gets embedded in our normal responses in life. But it starts with the same basics. We have to read the Scripture. We have to know the Scripture. We have to memorize the Scripture, memorize the promises. And then it's just a process of t going through these tests over and over and over and over again. It's, it's like an athlete. You take somebody who's going to be, he, he starts off learning baseball, or football, basketball, hockey, whatever it is, when they're five, six years old, and they're just having to go through the same drills over and over and over again. You're a musician. You go through the same exercises, the same technique exercises, and you play them over and over and over and over again to build the muscles, whether it's in your fingers, whether it's in the fingering in a string in instrument or in a woodwind or whether it has to do with 
uh, you know, something, some other different kind of instrument, but you have to practice it over and over and over and over and over again because it just becomes second nature to you. And that's the way the spiritual life is. And a lot of Christians just don't have the discipline to understand that. But if you're going to excel as a pianist, if you're going to excel with the guitar, if you're going to excel in voice, if you're going to excel in dance, if you're going to excel in football or computers or anything, you just have to be there and going through what you're doing over and over and over again, getting that experience. And and uh, uh, sometimes the experiences are not good experiences, but we learn more from our bad experiences than we do from our good experience. At least that's the experience that I've had, is I learn more from my bad experience than the good. So we have to make the Word of God the number one priority. Then we have to walk by the Spirit. That's the big mistake. Israel didn't walk by the Spirit, but they didn't apply the Word. That's a big mistake most Christians make, is they don't walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, walk in the light, or consider ourselves to be dead to sin. They don't think about those things till way too late. They're knee-deep or armpit-deep in the quicksand of carnality before they realize that, oh, I should have done something different. Now, what was that promise? Well, God doesn't leave us there. He does always meet us where we are, and he comes to us with grace and rescues us like he did with Israel over and over and over again, and he never says, okay, we've done this 5,782 times. I'm not doing it again. He is long-suffering. See, they fail to trust God exclusively and radically. When God talks about trusting him, he's not saying, trust me, where you have your fingers crossed behind your back, you have a good luck charm in your pocket, or you are um, uh, ready to bail. You have your own uh, safety net. God wants us to radically trust him and exclusively trust him and walk with him. So the 11th point, which was not numbered correctly here, the 11th point is some illustrations of divine testing in Israel. And what I wanted to do was to take that word, uh, Nasah, and say, where is that used elsewhere in the Old Testament? Where are there other tests? What can we learn from those tests? And you go to the end of, near the end of Abraham's life in Genesis 22.1, and we read, now it came about after these things. So that's talking about all these events that happened from the time God called Abram uh, from Ur of the Chaldees back in Genesis chapter 12, all of the different events in Abram's life until he gets to the end Isaac's been born. Isaac is now probably in his 20s or 30s, and God is going to give him a last test. Now, these tests were always related to God's promises. Now, there's an important principle there, that the tests that God brings into our life are related to the promises God has made to us. And so it's important to know the promises because God's testing to see if we're going to rely on those promises. And so God is testing Abraham And there was one key promise that God made to Abraham. And what was that? In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised that he would have a son 
and that it is through that son that God would give to Abraham an innumerable number of descendants that more than can be known, more than the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. And so all of these tests are related to that. And that he would give to those descendants a piece of real estate. He would give to those descendants the promised land, the land that was demarcated by the boundaries that God gave him, the Mediterranean, the Euphrates, up to the, uh, up to the north, all the way up to the Euphrates, to the north and northwest, and then to the south, down to the Wadi of Egypt. And so that was... Uh, that, that was the promise. So these tests are related to the Abrahamic covenant promises. Abraham, are you going to trust me to give you what I have promised you? And so he goes through all of these tests and uh, back about probably about 11 or 12 years ago, and I don't think I've reviewed this since, we went through the life of Abraham in our study of Genesis And I developed this, that there are 10 major tests. Now, the others are not called tests, but if we understand how God is testing Israel in all of these later tests that are called tests, then we know that the last test related to Isaac is just like all the others. Now that Isaac is grown, God is telling Abram that you need to take him up to Mount Moriah and that you need to offer him as a burnt offering sacrifice to me. And Abraham, all this time, he's trying to protect it and figure out how he can make the promise happen because God seems to take too long and all of these other things. And now God is going to take the promised seed away. And the test is for Abraham to... to apply the promise and say, well, even if I kill him, God's going to bring him back because God promised that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he's, he's going to trust God no matter what. So all of those tests led up to Abraham's ability to pass this last and final test. So we're going to do kind of a flyover of the life of Abraham in the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes. The first test came in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Here's Abraham living on the, uh, across to the east of Israel, and he's living down in the uh, area of southern, what is today southern Iraq, uh, where Ur of the Chaldees was, and God appeared to him. Now, Abraham was already saved. God appeared to him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave, and I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to give to you. God doesn't say north, south, east, west, how big the land is. He doesn't give him any other information that we know of. He just says, pack your bags, leave your family, and I'm going to take you to the land that I'm going to give to you. So he has to start trusting God. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 7, I mean in Genesis 12, 7, he promises Abraham that he's going to give him this piece of land for his descendants, and it will be theirs perpetually, forever. That's Genesis twelve seven. So this becomes the foundation. He's going to give him a son. He's going to give him this land. And almost all these big tests relate to uh, Abraham. Are you going to really trust me that I'm going to give you these things? And so he has to leave. God's going to take him to the land. So it involves the land promise. And he has to trust in God using the faith rest drill. 
Genesis 12.1 says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. In other words, leave all your security blankets behind, all your networks, all your friends, all your associates and family, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. That's first promise. I will bless you, second promise, and make your name great, third promise. And so you shall be a blessing. That's the first commandment. It's a, it's a commandment. You are to be a blessing. And in 12.3, God then says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Literally, it reads, The one who treats you with disrespect I will judge harshly. Two different words are translated curse in English. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's, that's the promise. You'll be a worldwide blessing. The test to trust God, uh, by, the next test was a test to trust God by staying in the land that God promised him. But a, if after he got there, an f- enormous famine entered the land. So the test is, am I going to stay where God told me to go or am I going to try to solve my problem on my own? And so he decides he's going to leave the land and go down to Egypt because they have water. Now, what happens down there? That doesn't seem like that's a big deal. In fact, many of us would say, well, that, that's probably a pretty good decision because there's no water where you are. You've got to have to take care of your family, so go where there's water. But while he's down there, he picks up a servant, a slave girl named Hagar, And that's going to be the beginning of a lot of problems that plague us today. In fact, today there were well over 100 rockets fired by Hamas at Tel Aviv, and Iron Dome took out over 100 of them. And they were firing on Jerusalem and a number of other places. Why? Because it goes back to the problem with the Arabs and Ishmael and the fact that that Abraham didn't trust God and stayed, stay in the land and he went to Egypt and pick up, picked up an Egyptian slave girl and then later on down the way, it's taking God so long to give us a son, Sarah says, well, why don't you just take Hagar as your concubine and you go into her and uh, she'll have a son and that will fulfill God's promise. See, we're always trying to figure out a way to help God do what God promised to do. And so that, that's what eventually will happen. So the, he, the test is to trust God by staying in the land, even in the midst of the famine, and uh, he fails it. Uh, he doesn't trust God, and he leaves the land. So this is, uh, goes to the promise of Je- uh, Genesis twelve seven to your descendants, I will give this land. Third test was Lot. Lot's his nephew. Remember, he was supposed to leave all of his family. Did he leave all of his family? No, he didn't. He took his father with him, and he took Lot with him. And then he went to Haran, and he had to wait for his father to die. And then he went on with Lot. And now they're getting a situation where uh, God has blessed both of them. They have lots of servants. They have lots of uh, flocks and herds. But their people don't get along, and so they need to be separated and and so Abram is, has this test. How am I going to handle this personnel crisis? 
How am I going to handle this systems crisis? We've got too many people. They're not getting along together. And he, he passes the test. He deals with Lot in grace. He says, look at all the land, Lot. Look at how beautiful all of it is. I, I'm not going to take the best and let you take the worst. You, you pick, first of all, you make the first choice, and you take what you want. And Lot looks around, and he he's, doesn't have a whole lot of... Uh, doctrine in his head, and he is um, uh, really attracted to that civilization down there in the five cities down in Sodom, and it's beautiful, it's well-watered, it's, it's a gorgeous place to live, and so he takes that as his home, and he goes down there, and Abram gets, gets the rest, and so he treats Lot with grace and generosity. Uh, it's still related to the land promise, but now he has to apply grace to Lot, which he does. And so that's described in Genesis uh, 13, uh, 14, and 15. I'm not going to take the time to read them, but it goes to Genesis 13, 16. This comes after they separate with Lot, and God reaffirms the, the promise and says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Then he has another. Remember that part of the promise where God said, you will bless those near you? Okay, now he has neighbors, and his neighbors are not the best people. They're the Sodomites and the people in Gomorrah and the other cities down in the valley where Lot went to live. And there are going to be these um, four kings. Uh, You've got Arioch and Tidal and Amraphel and Keterleomer, and they've got an alliance. Now, this goes from Turkey all the way down through uh, Syria and uh, Uh, down into Iraq, and they've got a huge army, and they're going to head down this way, and they're going to uh, capture everybody in those towns and take them and sell them as slaves and take take everything they have with them as loot, and then they start heading uh, heading north. So this is is the area uh, right down in here. I think I have another map that we're going to try to get this a little a little better. Okay, there's. Jerusalem, there's Damascus, there's Sodom down there by the Dead Sea. And so here they come. They're going to come down, take out all the bad guys, and then they're going to go back, circle back to the north, take out Sodom and head north. And it's right up here in in, in this area where you have uh, the city uh, that is later called Dan. And that is where... Abraham will take all of his men, who are basically a small army, some 300 plus, and they're going to go up there and they're going to defeat the five armies and rescue all the captives and take back all the plunder and everybody can go back, go back home. So he's, Abraham is being tested and he's going to be a blessing to his undeserving neighbors. And then that, that presents another test to express his gratitude to God for the victory. And that is when he gives uh, a tithe of the loot to Melchizedek. Now, the important thing to note there is every, every church, every preacher goes to this thing, and they say, see, there's your pattern for giving. You give 10% of what you have. It wasn't 10% of what Abraham had. It was 10% of the loot. He's giving 10% of what was stolen from the Sodomites. He's not giving 10% of what he owned, of his, 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 uh, 
uh, basic uh, income. He's giving 10% of the plunder to Melchizedek. So he is expressing his gratitude to God and worshiping God. Point number six, he continues to get worried about the seed, and he has to test there. Is he going to worry, or is he going to trust God? And that's described in Genesis 15, 1 through 21, and God comes and rehearses the covenant with him, and this is where actually where the covenant is going to be cut in that ceremony. And so God promises him a seed and that it will come from him and Sarah. It's not going to come uh, from uh, some other source. But then he has a test because Sarah thinks he's taken too long, and this is the test related to Hagar, and he fails that test, and uh, we're all still suffering the consequences for it. And then in Genesis 17, there's the test to be circumcised. The covenant is cut, and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is to be circumcised, so all the adult males have to be circumcised. And that probably was not a pleasant situation, so he has to decide whether or not he's going to obey God and be circumcised as a 90-something-year-old man or not. And he passes the test, and he trusts, trusts God. And then God shows up with two... Uh, angels in Genesis chapter 18, and so Abraham has to decide if he's going to show hospitality to his visitors, and he is a blessing to them, and he's very gracious to them. And then in the process of this, he is going to have to, uh, he finds out that God's going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot and his family are living. And so the test is, is he going to intercede for Lot and his family with God to preserve them, or is he going to say, well, you know, they chose that land, let God take them? No, he's going to be generous, he's going to intercede with God, and uh, he will argue with God to uh, rescue Lot and his family. So he is being a blessing to his own family, even when they are uh, taking advantage of his generosity. And then uh, the 11th test is the test to protect the seed during the visit to Gerar. This is like the visit to Egypt. They go to Gerar, which is a Philistine city, and there they face uh, the, the problem. He lies about Sarah again, says she's his sister. He's half right. She's his half-sister. But he's not really trusting God to protect her, and, and God does protect her and causes a lot of problems. Uh, for uh, the king of the Philistines there, and eventually he discovers this and gets really mad at Abraham for uh, for lying to him. Then uh, 12, so we've got more than 10 tests, don't we? We have about, uh, we have 13 in all. The test to protect the heir from the jealousy of Ishmael in Genesis 21, 1 to 20, 21, and so he is going to uh, trust God, uh, uh, rely upon the promise, and then the final test, which is the test to sacrifice the promised seed. And he passes that with flying colors. Why? Hebrews 11.10 says, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He trusted in God to solve and provide for him. So with that, I'm going to stop here. We're going to look at two or three other examples in the Old Testament of testing, but I wanted to go through that because we see that God does this in our lives. We go through test after test after test, and our narrow 
nearsighted approach is that what am I going to do tomorrow? And God is looking at the really long game that prepares us for eternity. And so we have to look at these tests as opportunities to express joy and apply the word and grow spiritually, even if it's not pleasant. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to learn how you work in our life through the Word of God and the Spirit of God and bringing these various situations uh, before us where we have to choose to apply your Word. And in and through that, we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit in our inner man. We grow, we mature, you form the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and the character of Christ. And that is what our lives are all about. As much as we hate to admit it, it's not about how successful we are or how much money we make or how well we do our job or all these other things, not that anything's wrong with that. But the important thing is uh, going through our spiritual life and spiritual growth to prepare us for eternity. And we pray that you would give us that long-range focus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.